The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Bless this reading of the word. Now, this morning we're in two different, I feel like we're in two different situations. Now, that's kind of a, a simplistic way of saying that, okay, there might be a hundred people in the room, but yet there's a hundred different circumstances happening, a hundred different ways that people have been taught about the Bible. Uh, there's so many different diversities amongst us. I want to try to trivialize it and just put us into two categories. I want to say this morning, there are those of us in the room that don't yet believe in Jesus, and then there's those of us in the room that do believe in Jesus. Now, in both gamuts, I think there's a wide variety. There are some of you in here today saying, I am only here because the cute girl sitting next to me invited me, otherwise I would not be in church. And then there's others of us in here that, man, we couldn't wait to get here. We've been on the verge of tears. We just are so excited about our love for Jesus Christ, and we just can't contain ourselves. So when the worship leader is saying, say Jesus over and over again, you're just like, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And then others of you are like, oh my gosh, this is weird. And so that's where we are in the room right now. There's a huge variety of where we are and what we believe and what we value and what we hold on is true. And so I don't think anything's any different in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. You have a church that's known for its talents and its gifts. When Paul talks and writes about the church in Corinth, he's constantly praising them because they have everything in his opinion. They have all the gifts of the Spirit. They have financial prosperity. They have um, all this type of um, job security and comforts and all these different things are accessible to them. And then he's now writing to them about the fact that, you know what, in the midst of all of that that's going on in your life, there's still Jesus. And when you read 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I want to slow it down for you. It says, for what I received, I passed on to you in the first place. And I just want you to stop here just for a minute. Who did he receive this from? And if you and I can actually go back and look at this, Paul, before he wrote this and before he was even encouraging the church, um, what was he known for? What was that? Killing Christians. So this book and this letter, this sentence, really, this, um, this, this for what I received, I pass on you in the first place, is a man that knows what it feels like to receive the grace of God. Because at one point in time, he actually was a murderer. And now what the Bible refers to him as is he's an apostle, which means he basically started churches where they didn't exist. So so somewhere in between all of that, there was a revelation. Something revealed to him truth. And I believe that some of us in here today are going to have a hard time grasping this. But there was a portion of his revelation that was a gift to him from the Holy Spirit of God. That same Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit that can be our teacher. I want to be an excellent teacher. I want to inspire you to want to know God as best that I humanly can. But I can only take you so far. The Holy Spirit can do so much more. But also Paul had some great teachers. There's actually a period of time in Paul's life where he disappeared for three years and he was just taught by a, uh, a, a scholarly rabbi that obviously had put together pieces in the scriptures that he hadn't yet put together. And then Paul goes out and, and, and starts his ministry career. So there's so much that he had had revealed to him. But the thing that he says to them in this revelation is, is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
Now, we are going to take every Sunday between now and Easter and try to help you make sense of this. And the reason why I started with the two categories is that two different groups of us need to make sense of this. Those of you that don't yet believe in Jesus, I'm prayerful that maybe this year running through Easter will be the year that you'll be like, it is true. I believe that Christ died for my forgiveness of sins, right? I want that. I, I want us to be able to all be able to step into that belief. But then the rest of us that do believe, if we read the letter of Ephesians correctly, what is the one calling that all of us have been called to live? What are we supposed to do with our lives? Testify to whom? Jesus Christ, right? To Jesus Christ, right? And so if you believe in Jesus, your calling isn't just to be a nurse or a doctor or whatever it is that you're pursuing. God is allowing you to have a vocation. And sometimes God might actually ask you to go do that vocation. But when we confess the belief in Jesus Christ, according to the Apostle Paul, all of us have now been asked to then be a mouthpiece, an ambassador a high priest, so to speak, of a representative of the fact that our Father lavishly loved us through Jesus Christ. And so with me sharing that with you, my prayer is for those of you that believe, I can help you set a firm foundation underneath of you that between now and Easter, when Easter comes and people ask you, why in the world is Easter such a big deal? Why do you believe in Jesus? You actually can sit back and talk to them and have confidence that you are saying what is true. So many of you don't say anything because you don't want to say anything wrong. Some of you don't say anything because you don't want to be embarrassed because you don't know how to debunk all of the crazy Christians from the actual ones that look like Jesus. And so you don't want to be associated with the crazies, so you don't say anything. But yet we've got to overcome that because in our relation with Jesus Christ, we've got to talk about Jesus. It's got to become a part of our, our comfort zone where we can look at people in, our face, in their faces and say to them, look, I'm going to tell you why I believe in Jesus. It's not our responsibility to convince them to believe. We need to speak passionately. We need to speak truthfully. We need to have a little bit of persuasive tone. We might even love them so much that we cry over it and baptize our words in our own tears. But at the end of the day, our responsibility is just to talk about it. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to do a work and to draw them in. And so at some level, we have got to, if we believe in Christ, get to the point where we're comfortable enough to talk about him. And I'm not saying this because I want to delegate my responsibility as a pastor to you and be like, hey, you know what? I just want to preach on Sundays. I don't want to have to counsel anybody. I want to study. I just want to show up. You guys go do the work so I can just go take it easy six days a week and only work one day, right? Some of you are like, well, don't, isn't that what you do anyway? Uh, no, it's not. Um, but... But part of it is, is I just want to spur you on to do exactly what it is to say, I, I want to be obedient to Christ with everything that I am. Actually, after the ascension, there's another passage of scripture, not only the 1 Corinthians 15 passage that I, we just read to you, but there's a passage out of Luke 24 that we're going to refer to a lot in the next couple of weeks. Because I think it'll be encouraging to you. It's actually an Emmaus Road walk story. And we actually have the verse up on the screen for you. But in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now imagine, 
It's after the ascension and you and a friend are walking. You had just witnessed Christ being crucified and you're sad and you're discouraged and you're walking down the road like, oh my goodness, I was there when he fed the 5,000. I was there when he, when he turned tables over in the temple and now he's gone. And next thing you know, somebody's walking along beside you and they're telling you all these wonderful things about Christ. And then it's like, wow, you feel it in your spirit. You realize, wow, it's Jesus. And then you realize that, wow, he just walked from Moses through all the prophets and began to show us something powerful. So there's a slide that's going to rhythmically keep appearing in this series. I just want to go ahead and put it up for you now. It's basically like a very simplistic timeline that I want you to be able to visually see this. Because a lot of people, when you talk to Christians, will act like as if God just randomly one day sent Jesus. Like he had just had enough. And he did not go like, like, come on, get out of here, go down there, die for them. This is pathetic. Like this, like it was just he, he hit his tolerance button. Like we had just ticked him off so much with our godlessness and our sinfulness and our idolatry that one day he just blew up and he's like, Jesus, got to get him out. Go, go. Look, like, look, I know this is I'm, I'm delegating all this on you, but you're going to be the one you drew the short straw. Spirit will go next. Um, you know, like as if that's and again, I'm not saying that disrespectfully, but I just want to talk about the posture which I receive conversation even in my office. Is like as if all of a sudden randomly one day, Jesus. But if you were with us at all when we were going through the letter of Ephesians, you know that everything that God has done has been with incredible intent. There's been a plan all along. And so Jesus in Luke 24 is referencing from Moses through the prophets, then Christ. But Moses and the prophets were all pointing to Christ. And he's saying that there's all this was happening so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Now, again, I just I'm specifically using the word scriptures and not using the word Bible here, because at the time Paul is writing this, the majority of the New Testament has not yet been written. So I don't want you to get confused that he had everything in his hand that you and I have in our hand. What he had were the scrolls of Moses called the Torah or the Pentateuch, which was the first five books of the Bible. They had the prophets, which were also the major and minor ones, like the little ones that you can't spell. And then the big ones that you're like, wow, those books are too long and confusing. So we just avoid them altogether. <laughs> Paul actually dove into them through the power of the Holy Spirit and started making sense of it. And then he starts teaching people in the early church why it was so important, because when the cross finally hits the timeline, it's exactly when God wanted it to. And that doesn't mean that the people that lived before the cross were less loved and we're now more loved. Let's not think too highly of ourselves. All right. Is that God has had a plan all along and we may not understand it, but it's God's plan and it's perfect. And so part of what I'm hoping that we can do between now and Easter is for you and I to be able to look our friends in the face and be able to say, you know what, I might not be able to understand or articulate fully, but God's plan has been right. God's plan for us, his love for us has been perfect and right, and nothing is going to hinder that. And so today I've tried to outline this, but let me talk about the scriptures here for a minute, which is the Old Testament for a moment. Let's just focus solely on the Old Testament and leave the Gospels out and the letters in the New Testament just for a moment. If you were actually going by an actual Jewish Bible, the Jewish Bible ends with the Chronicles. It's this idea of the kings, and it kind of just tells the story and then just stops. In the Christian Bible, we end with minor prophets, and in the particular one, we end with Malachi. 
And if you were to read through the Old Testament, as haphazard as our Old Testament is put together because it doesn't follow a chronology, which, side note, if you are looking for a creative way to read the Bible this year, I would encourage you to go like on uversion.com, which is a Bible app that you can download. There's an incredible chronological reading plan. It, and it's a really fun way to read through specifically the Old Testament because you, you're jumping around through different books, but as you're getting into it, you do get caught into this massive narrative that God was doing through the nation of Israel that really is overwhelming. All right? Now let me step back. When you come back to this way that the Christian Bible is laid out, you go from one story to the next, you're talking about kings, you're talking about exile, you're talking about psalms and proverbs and wisdom, and then there's the one book that 13-year-olds shouldn't read, right? And then you keep going on, right? And then you keep going through all these prophets and all this kind of stuff. When you get to the end, though, whether you're reading through the Jewish Bible or you're reading through the Christian Bible, you get to the end and you feel like the story's unfinished. So much of the language of all of that you get all these promises that haven't been fulfilled. You get these journeys where you're like, wait a minute, you can't leave me hanging there. What happened after? Where, what, what went on in all this? So there's a, theory, a point in time when, when the story does feel unfinished and we need to be able to focus on this. So let me give you a brief run through, just in case you've never had much Old Testament. And I don't want to drown you out in this, but I want to whet your appetite to be able to fully understand that God has had a plan and he's doing something very special. But you and I have to begin to look at the Bible, not as people that may fictitiously have lived or may not have lived or that they were in some ways more superhuman than we are. Or like maybe they walked six inches above the ground and we walked with our feet on the ground and Jesus walked, you know, he hovered everywhere he went. Whatever it is, this flesh and blood, people like us, wrestling through all of these things. Let's start with Abraham for a minute. Abraham actually goes down towards Egypt and gets himself in all kinds of trouble when we find him. We also find that his son Isaac does the very same thing. Isaac's younger brother Jacob escapes the wrath of his older brother Esau, runs away for 14 years to marry two women, and ends up having all kinds of problems, ends up heading back towards Egypt. Jacob's family then, for centuries, ends up living in Egypt. You know the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors and how they ended up selling them into slavery and then famines came and the family moved to Egypt. And before long, over 400 years later, they've been living a life of slavery and exile. But yet, they were promised this idea of a promised land. This Passover came, this Exodus story comes, and they are told about a promised land. And even once they finally reach the promised land, there's this great story of the kings. But how many kings into it were they before they realized they were in real trouble? Uh, the first, Saul, right? And I love the way that they determined how to make him king. Do you guys ever really see the simplicity, the simplicity of that? He was the tallest. <laughs> um, sorry, Greg. Uh, you know, I can't lead here. We, we're not going to follow that. Like he's on the second level. I hope he's listening through the baby monitor over here. It's like, you need, it's like if you saw him, you could, you could see his head pop up around the stage, um, the stairs. But, you know, it's like, we, it's like, what way do you pick your leader? It's like, oh, well, who's the tallest? Who's the head highest? Okay, who's the best looking? Who's the most athletic? You know, whatever. I mean, however you end up. Actually, Greg, you are in here. Sorry, just talking about you. And you're standing next to the second tallest man in the whole church. Neither of you can lead. You're unqualified. Uh, but uh, so much of that story was is that they just so quickly 
ended up pursuing, Saul had some great days, but then very, very quickly the self-centeredness of his life kicked in. And he actually ended up going crazy and losing his mind. And he started um, dabbling with sorcery and all these other kinds of things. And then David, there was a few great years under David, and David's called a man after God's own heart. But let's just talk about this. David had sinful issues. David's children were a mess. Um, so many things happened, and it wasn't long after David's reign that the kingdom was divided north from the south. Um, the northern kingdoms were eventually taken over by Assyria, and it wasn't long after that there was an exile in Babylon. And we pretty much just walked through the Old Testament. Does that sound resolved? I mean, so much about the Old Testament where these little exiles followed by a big exile, followed by a little bit of a promised land, and then not really much of a promised land, and the more exile, and then a little bit back to rebuild the temple and the walls, and then more exile, and then, and then we find ourselves just kind of open at the end, like what happened at the end of the, the Old Testament? Like what's, what's really the condition of the nation of Israel? And so much of everything that was happening. And then we find in the book of Daniel that even though there's this desire in Isaiah and Ezekiel for all things to be put to rights for last, like, every, like they, they, there's this idea, like they want it to be right finally, like make it right. But in Daniel, you find out that there's not just a 70-year exile period, there's going to be a 70 times 7, which is also interesting that Jesus talks about forgiveness that way, which I wonder who sets the example of forgiveness, by the way. God's great love. But 70 times 70, that's like 700 years of more trouble, over 500 years of more trouble, which there's two massive exile periods in Israel's story. But the great theme that Daniel is saying in this unfinished story as they're searching for an ending, and no matter what words you come up with reading through Daniel, what words you come up reading through Isaiah and Ezekiel, there's one word that comes up, and it's the word hope. They were hoping for the end. They were wanting it right. They were wanting it completed. And they were longing for it. Um, N.T. Wright actually puts it this way, a hope born of the faith that because Israel God was the creator of the whole world, that he would, he must take action sooner or later to put everything right. So why would the whole story, according to 1 Corinthians 15.3, our main verse, why would the whole story be climacting at a moment of forgiveness of sins? Why would Paul or anyone else say that it all was happening in accordance with the scriptures? So there's two main things we're going to pursue over these weeks leading up to Easter. Is that forgiveness of sins and accordance to the scriptures. And I'm sorry I keep alluding back to Ephesians, but it was one of those things I wish everybody would have heard. So I just want to encourage you to go back and listen to some of the podcasts, if not all of them, because it's a foundation I think we all need. But there's one part when we were talking about sin in the letter to the Ephesus church where we actually went to Luke chapter 7. And in Luke chapter 7, there's this powerful story, and, and you want to write it down, read it later. There's a powerful story of Jesus being invited to a fancy meal at a Pharisee's house. And it says that Jesus reclined at the table. Now, mind you, the tables were lower to the ground in the Middle East. And so when he says he reclined at the table, because your left arm in the Jewish culture was considered unclean, you would lean on that arm. And then you would eat with your right hand, which means your feet were extended from the table. And introduce a new character to the story. There's a lady that's known as a sinner walks in. Could you imagine? Everybody 
in a room eating, and you walk in the room, and everybody's like, Senator just walked up. Well, some of you might be like, yeah, I know the feeling. Um, Senator just walked in. People talking about you. You're feeling it. Like, wow, there's sinfulness that just walked into the room. And so when you begin to see that, then you find in this story that as soon as she gets to Jesus, she starts weeping uncontrollably. She weeps so much so that she wet Jesus's feet with her tears so much so that she was able to use his hair to clean them. Like how much water does it take to wet somebody's feet enough to take the dirt from the road off of their sandals off of them and wipe it with their hair? This woman was broken at the foot of Jesus. So somewhere along the way, the uh, scriptures, according to the scriptures and the forgiveness of the sins, hit her like a ton of bricks to where it opened up her tear ducts, so much so that she was broken over it and weeping at the feet of Christ and was wiping his feet. And at the end of that story, um, one of the Pharisees sitting at the, the table was named Simon, and it says that he was thinking to himself about her and her situation, and it says Jesus responded to him. You can't hide your thoughts from the Lord. I just want you to know that. They're not private. And so he actually responds to him. And he says, look, if there was a guy that owned a, uh, owned a, uh, a lender $500 and another guy that owned a lender, a lender $50 and the lender f- forgave both of them, who would love the lender more? The one that had been forgiven $500. And Jesus responds to him, you have answered wisely. And here's the thing. This is the struggle that I have in pastoring in this generation to this part of Baltimore City. The majority of us that come in here might identify as a sinner, but we're going to identify more with the $50 sinner, not the $500 sinner. And that impacts how we worship. That impacts how much we really do believe Easter's for us. It impacts how much we really do believe that God died for us so that we could enjoy this, glo- this wonderful promise that comes from God. So much of what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks is going to be about the ways that we deal with sin. And you guys are like, great. This is going to be fantastic. Because if you've been to an American church in the last 50 years, that is one topic that a lot of pastors really like to talk about. And they will break it down for you. They will even offer you a list of sins when you walk in the door and say, if you have certain of these sins, you're not welcome to worship here, right? And can I can I get some agreement on that? There's been so many different ways people have approached it. So many people will be like, they'll even come up to me after church on a Sunday saying, I know that somebody's in sin in the church. How do we go about disciplining them, right? That's another way people have been dealt with and talked about sin in the church. Like, how do you deal with spiritual discipline? Because it's in the scriptures, Like, so how do we walk in spiritual discipline when you know that a brother or sister that claims to be in Jesus is living in a bad way? And so they've got one of the sins on the list. And so how do we address that when at the same time, as a pastor, I'm drawn back to, okay, so let's, we'll we'll deal with that, but let's talk about the sin in our own eye, right? Right? So there's a tension, like, because how you talk about sin Number one will lead to either a full church or an empty church, right? All right, let's just be honest. It's like last week, we talked about giving, and we had a high attendance Sunday, but the lowest offering of the year. It's kind of how it works. Um, um, And so, yeah, that's true. Um, But yet, this week, if if I mention sin, 
you know, it's very likely we're going to have a lot more empty seats next Sunday, right? Especially if I start naming some of them. That could be a, po- a problem. But yet, if we're not careful, we will claim to follow Jesus, but yet have no way of practicing it with any sense of grace and peace amongst us. Because at some level, at the end of the day, I think we think about sin wrongly. And therefore, we carry with us all of this idea of the ways that we've been taught about sin, the way we've been beat up with sin. And so what I'm asking for you is permission before you draw any conclusions as you get with me to Easter. Because we are going to try to say, why does talking about sin offend me so much? Why do I not like it? Why am I okay with talking about Hitler's sins? Or name whomever you want, right? We can talk about whomever we want, but yet I don't want to stand in front of a mirror and feel guilty for any of the sinful practices in my own life. And so I believe Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, is saying Christ died so that we could have this conversation. Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins according to the scriptures, and I hope that we can do this. But here's the thing. There are so many distorted visions, so many abuses, so many abuses from pastors who will actually preach about sin, but then you know what they're doing, right? And so with integrity, how do I stand in front of you knowing that I'm a sinner, and knowing that there's things that, that I need to continue to work on, not, not speaking from a posture of perfection, but how do we lead ourselves in this way? And there's, there's usually a, a, a specific Greek word that's used in the New Testament to de- describe sin. And it's actually spelled H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A. And I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I can't even pronounce English, let alone Greek. So, but this word actually means missing the mark. Like as if you're shooting at a target and failing to hit it. Missing the mark. I believe that if we're patient with each other, and we can get through these next several weeks, and we can walk this journey together, we will look at the scriptures, the Old Testament, the life story of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We'll look at some of the religious practices that they had. We'll look at their stories of promised land, exile, and we will get a better glimpse of what sin is as defined by missing a mark. Because this is what I believe sin is. We're not living up to the image bearing of God that he created us to do. I am designed and created by God to bear his image in the world. And whenever I don't do that, I am living in sin. Because my mark is to live like him. And if I'm not on that mark, then I am off that mark, which means I am living in sin. All right, now besides the three of you that feel comfortable saying it, we're all going to say the word together because it's in the Bible and you can't skip it when you read it. So we're going to all practice it. It's going to come off of our tongue. You can say it in a native language if you need to just to get around it. But I'm just going to ask you on the count of three. One, two, three. Sin. All right, we've got to be okay. We can't just say my misbehavior. You know, sometimes I, I'm, I'm not the best. All right? We, whatever it is that we do to make ourselves feel better about it, you and I, no matter what we know about the Scriptures, what we, we've got to get comfortable talking about this because here's the thing. Jesus died for it. However you feel about it, and it, however level of, of responsibility you might feel, 
it, it cost Jesus his life so that you and I can be forgiven. So we have failed at our vocation. We are to be bearing the image of God into this world, but yet we're not doing that. So when we, who were designed by God to bear his image, don't bear his image, then we find ourselves in a lot of Old Testament biblical language, like we're in exile, we're in bondage, we're in slavery. And so hopefully we can tie all these pictures together. But at the end of the day, if you need to substitute one word for sin, as we look at heading towards Easter, it's idolatry. Sin is me choosing to worship something other than God. Usually it's self. Usually when I sin, I'm worshiping the God of myself. I want something that is for me, and I could care less at that moment if it hurts God or anybody else. I want it for me. And so it's the God of self. And if we're not careful, we will end up worshiping ourselves right into disbelief and walking away from God. So we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. And so here, let me bring it back to Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, well, here, let me say this. I'm going to go back all the way to the garden in order to emphasize this point of sin. If you and I obey a serpent's voice, you and I will forfeit the right to the tree of life. I just want you to understand this. If, if, if over these next several weeks, you and I are not careful, we're going to listen to the spirit of this world define sin, and we're going to miss out on life. Or we can listen to God's voice on sin and have eternal life, Right? But we can't have it both ways. Well, as some people say, you can't have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. We've got to be really careful because at the end of the day, God is just and right. And if it's our desire to worship ourselves, God will let you do that for all of eternity, separated from him. But at the end of the day, you and I are designed to bear his image. When he was walking on the Emmaus Road, with the, with the men that he was walking with that particular day, he says in verse 25, how foolish are you? Isn't that a great way to start a conversation, by the way? Could you imagine walk, sitting at dinner with your friends and you're just talking about your ideas and theology and what you believe about God and what you believe about the Bible and what you believe about whatever it is you're going through, and your friend just looks you in the face and says, how foolish are you? I don't think that that conversation would go well, but here's the thing. Um... Why can't we have hard conversations like that without totally offending one another and sending each other spinning towards other churches? Because if we generally love one another and we have a general compassion and there's, we should have a little bit of tolerance in ourselves to be able to look each other in the face and say, I'm sorry, but I think that's foolish talk. And then back it up, right? We can't just offer our opinion and just leave it out there like, well, why do you think it's foolish? Well, I don't know. It just sounds foolish. Well, then that's your opinion, my opinion. And then now you're sounding foolish. And then when two foolish people are arguing, who's foolish, right? They both are, right? But yet at some point in time, my desire is for us as we head towards Easter is that we're confident to know what God has done for us according to the scriptures and through the cross of Christ, that we can look at one another and be like, you know what? I think we're missing the mark. I think our conversation is off. And then he goes on, how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into the glory? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained everything to them. 
So I, th- I believe that what we're going to find over these next several weeks is that we still are in the same practice as the Israelites were in the Old Testament. They desire exile to be undone all throughout the Old Testament. How many of you are just tired of feeling like you're in a wilderness and you want it to be undone? How many of you really do desires that your sins will be forgiven? So many of the things we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks are, are the Jewish practices that really spoke to the fact that they wanted their sins forgiven. And then, how many of us in here are really wanting there to be new life in this world? So many Christians that I grew up in, I went to churches in the 70s and 80s, and sorry, just had a birthday, and I'm just like, you know what? And when your daughter on Instagram is like, well, 45, you're halfway done. Uh, you know, it's just like, wow. I'm like, yes, feel loved. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, that could be true. Could be true. I know some 90-year-olds. My, my grandmother lived to be 96, and grandfather lived to be 88. So I'm like, you know what? She might have an argument based upon math. Um, but cold-hearted. Uh. <laughs> but so much of our life is desiring for things to be right now and not wait for eternity. So why would we have such a strong desire for God's will to be done now? And why would the Lord's Prayer lead for us to have a passion for God's will to be done now? And not just like my pastors were preaching at me in the 70s and 80s. You need to put your life in Jesus so you can spend eternity in heaven because he's going to blow the earth up. Right? Which was really birthed out of this whole post-World War II, nuclear war culture that hit the world. And pastors were like, wow, everybody's got missiles aimed at everybody. And so if the world was to blow up today, would you spend eternity with God in heaven? You know, well, the answer is, are you sure? Which I want to say to us today, like, do you have a relationship with Christ? But at the end of the day, God, God wants his will on earth. He doesn't want any bombs blowing up. He made everything that we see at the, in the creation story, he said was good. Why would God want us, his stewards of the earth, to wipe that off the face of the earth? That's not his will and his way. That's off the mark. That's sin. That's not what he wants. And so we, as a church, have the opportunity over these next few weeks to say, all right, what, is, what, what has God marked out for us? What has he revealed through the scriptures? What has he brought to full clarity in Jesus so that now you and I can join him in a on-the-mark life? where we're walking in the forgiveness of our sins. And so today I just want to say to you guys, what do you believe about Jesus? What does he really mean to you? And if you really don't have an answer for that, would you please talk to me, talk to the person that brought you, or would you tear off that little perforation on your ministry guide and say, I just want to talk to you about clarity, about who Jesus is. I just want to settle that issue. I would love to have that conversation with you. Let's not wait for Easter. And then the rest of us, why are we not talking about it? It's the best news ever. It's true. It's not fake. It's true. So let's get up a courage and begin to to talk to people about it.